today from Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19 and reading to the end of the chapter, which is verse 31. So Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me <clears throat> and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, <clears throat> for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Morning, Chapel Street. Morning to everyone online, too, and those that will listen near and far online at the uh, podcast later on. It's good to be back. I love coming to church. I love Sundays and the rest of the week. We probably shouldn't even mention. Um, we're back in Luke uh, chapter 16. We're more than halfway now. And uh, I think we've been doing this for over a year. Hopefully you're enjoying Luke. Are you enjoying Luke? I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Um, it's been a, a powerful book as it is. It's the gospel. It contains the gospel. And we've been looking at parables. So as we get into it today, let's just bow our heads for a moment and just pause and reflect on the word and pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, again we humbly come before you acknowledging who you are. You alone are God. You alone sent your son. And we are mere mortals. And before you, we are sinners, broken, contrite, but saved by grace through faith. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you for that. And Lord, if necessary, please rebuke us today. Please, Lord, encourage us, admonish us, equip us for every good work, for being like your son. Lord, if we need to squirm on our seats, may that be something we recognize in terms of your hand. Lord, I pray that you would speak. Your word is mighty to save it is mighty to sanctify and it is mighty for the effect that it makes in us to bring glory to you. And so, Lord, I pray that that indeed would be our experience today. 
We pray these things in the precious, matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. J.D. Rockefeller, who some of you may have heard of, the American um, magnet associated with the oil industry, um, in the 1800s, after amassing a huge fortune, which by today's standard would be akin to uh, Elon Musk, is that the right name? And Bill Gates and those kind of people, was asked about his wealth. It's a famous little discourse. A reporter said to him, how much, Mr. Rockefeller, is enough? How much is enough? And his reply was very clear. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. The truth, when it comes to money, there is never enough. Because money does not satisfy. And if our hope is found in money, it will not fulfill. It will not bring joy. And it will ultimately come to an end. And our passage today is about money. We've had several parables from the Lord that have been about money. And this one packs a punch because it expresses that where our treasure, our heart will be also. It expresses that if we have an affection for the wrong thing, then we will get a bad end. It's about eternal things, about eternal uh, destinations. It's about hoping in Christ and not in money. And we live in a very money-oriented world, don't we? It's completely captivated by money and what money promises to give, but never really does. And we know that. And yet sometimes we get caught up in it ourselves. So don't miss the punch. This is a terrifying uh, parable. It's the last one that the Lord gives specifically about money in, in this gospel. We continue with parables, but this one is the last one about money. And so we should listen very carefully. Not looking after the poor in the Old Testament and here in the New is considered very wrong. In fact, oppression of the poor in the Old Testament is allied to murder. The Old Testament talks about the kinsman redeemer, talks about gleaning, leaving things in the field for those that are hungry and have nothing so that they come and feed. It's a very serious thing. And the poor are here today in this town. Perhaps not at our gate, but they're here. I met two of them this morning out of sheer coincidence. And if we have time, I may relay that story to us later. They're here. This parable really is about the link between how we live as an expression of our faith and the ramifications, the results that arise from that reality. And it should be chilling. And so today, as we go through this, I'd like to encourage you to examine your affections, the things that you give your hope to, your love to, your desires to, and consider especially the power of the word of God to cause us to repent, to cause us ultimately to be saved. So my first point is 
how we spend our earthly riches demonstrates where our true affections lie. What we do with our riches is linked, or it should be, with our faith as a direct expression of it. And in this text, the rich man shows us very clearly where his affections are. Please turn again to Luke 16, verse 19. I'll read for us and I'll draw out some things. We'll see. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we have these two men, and they're very different. Their circumstances, their status is very different. We've got a rich man. What can we say about him from this text? Well, firstly, he's rich. Makes it very clear. He's clothed in purple. Now, I'm not a huge fan of purple, but in the ancient world, purple was a color that was used for fabric for kings, for the aristocracy of the age. If you wore purple, you could afford something special. This man is clothed in purple and fine linen. And it says that he feasted sumptuously. Sumptuously. That word literally means plentifully and exorbitantly, expensively. It wasn't a trip to Macca's. This was a big feast that he had. And guess what? He had it every day. Every day. He didn't just have a big feast when there was a wedding or some other great event. He feasted sumptuously every day. It's just part of his life. And in contrast to that, we've got a poor man. What can we say about him from the text? Well, firstly, he's poor. He's laid at the rich man's gate. He's not even standing. He's actually naked. He might well be wearing a loincloth or something similar, but he's basically naked. He's not clothed in purple. He's clothed in sores. And then, of course, he's hungry. And the dogs come and lick his sores. Just reflect on that. It's a horrific picture, isn't it? Poor, naked, covered with sores, hungry and licked by dogs. What a horrible picture. And it's a, a picture, isn't it, of excessive riches on one side and excessive poverty on the other. And I want us just to notice two things about this text. Firstly, the poor man desired to be fed, as you would if you're hungry. But he didn't desire to eat or feast sumptuously. He didn't actually desire to eat much at all. He only desired with, to eat what, with what fell from the man's table, the rich man's table. Now, in the ancient world, the food that fell from the table was often gathered up and given to the dogs. Sometimes servants would take it. It was good food, right? Sumptuous food. This man, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of that thing when we drop something on the floor that there's a kind of five-second rule and you can pick it up and eat it. But we know that that's not wise. We pick it up and put it in the bin or feed it to one of the pets. He didn't want much. 
just wanted the stuff that fell from the table. He wasn't after a huge meal. And secondly, I want you to notice that he is lying at the gate. Firstly, this rich man is a gate. <laughs> Not everyone in the ancient world had a gate. You had a gate, you had a big house. Because a gate is to keep people out. Probably had a garden. Maybe reading too much into a parable, so we've got to be careful. But I want you to get the image. This guy had a gate. And at the gate was laid a poor man who was naked and covered in sores and he was hungry. Well, why does the Lord put that in? Well, because the rich man has to go through the gate, possibly every day. And other people have to go through the gate. If the rich man goes through the gate, what's he going to see? Well, he should see a poor man, naked, hungry, in sores, ill, lying there. But he doesn't. Not interested in this man. He didn't desire much. He didn't even notice him. He could have just stopped, couldn't he, and said, hey, you okay? What, what's happening here? You're hungry. Oh, I feast every day. Sumptuously, come in. There's plenty for you. Oh, you're naked. Have a cloak. Have a purple one. But he didn't. He didn't do any of that. But he could have. He could have seen him every day. And we must ask the question, why? Why didn't he see him? Why was the rich man like this? Well, simply because his affections in life, his love, his hope was misplaced. His hope wasn't for the poor. And I think we can say and we'll learn that his hope wasn't for God because his hope was in himself, in his riches, in his rich living, his rich lifestyle. That's what the world's like today. That's what the world advertises, isn't it? Fame and fortune. Fame and fortune. Great living, rich living. And yet the world is full of poverty. You should have asked him to come in. Because how we spend our earthly riches demonstrates where our true affections are. Point number two, then, where our affections lie has eternal consequences and significance. So it's not just a thing of having misplaced affections, but it's having a thing of misplaced affections that affects where we end up. And we know that our works do not save us. But we also know that our works, which includes giving to the poor, are a reflection of whether or not we have faith in Christ. It gives us, this parable gives us a picture of final destinations. Verse 22. I love the way uh, Luke has put this, or the Lord has put this. It's very stark. He says, listen carefully. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man died and was buried. What a contrast. The poor man was carried by angels. The rich man died and was buried. And guess where he goes? Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham from afar and Lazarus at his side. Now, I don't want to get into any particular Old Testament theology, but I want to say quite clearly that this is a picture of heaven and hell. 
Hades is the place of the dead. It's a place of absolute torment. And some people say, well, that's not hell. Well, there's fire. There's separation. There's torment. There's anguish. And listen, the person who speaks more about hell in the Bible than anyone else is Jesus. Did you know that? He speaks about hell a lot. Matthew 13, the Lord says, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Hell's real. There's not some analogy, not some clever metaphor. It's a place. It's a place of judgment, of torment, torment and of anguish. Man's burning up. He's burning up. He's not burnt up because hell is eternal. If it wasn't, we wouldn't really have to worry. But it's an ongoing burning up. Did you notice? Irony of ironies. The rich man wants Lazarus to come to Hades and dip his finger in some cool water so that he might cool his tongue. The rich man wants this man that he paid no attention to, to be his servant. There's no repentance, is there, in this man's heart, even though he's in hell. How wicked is that? And then the rich man learns the most fundamental problem about hell and heaven. Read it again, verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here, heaven, to you, hell, may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. Death brings absolute separation. It brings separation from us. Someone dies from our midst, a cousin. Separation, it's instantaneous. It either brings peace with God and togetherness through Christ or absolute separation eternally in hell. It's a chasm. It's a gaping canyon with no bottom. You can't go under it, around it. You can't cross it. No one can come in and no one can go out. Quite a contrast, isn't it, to a gate. The gate that he went in and out and had the opportunity daily perhaps to love the poor exposes this parable that our affections the things we love and hope in have eternal consequences do i truly love god do i do you 
You help the poor and the needy. You're commanded to. Or do I love the world and all it has to offer, even in a small way? I'm not living like a rock star, a billionaire. Frankly, we're pretty rich in this world. You know, some Christians actually really believe that the blessings that God brings us in a monetary, materialistic form are entirely for us. That's not true at all, as we learned last week. Everything that's given to us is from God. And sure, we need food and clothing and shelter. But that money isn't fundamentally for us. It's for God. It's for God's glory. It's for the furtherance of his gospel into the world. It's for the poor and the needy. Many years ago, I was telling a story last week. Um, I was approached by a friend in another church who wanted to tell me some great news. He was very excited. He thought this would be good. And he uh, wanted to tell me that at the moment, there is $6,000 discount on the cruise that you could take from Sydney to Seattle and that I should really take up the offering because it was only going to cost me 12000 instead of eighteen. I was very challenged by that. I haven't been on a cruise since I was young, but cruises, frankly, are about opulence. They're about luxury. What a great, luxurious way to travel. And they, those ships have everything on them. And I'm not against going on a cruise, but I'm certainly against spending money on something like that. Bold, I know, but I think that that's the right response to that. All those things are for God and how we spend them matters. Otherwise, the expression of our faith is lacking. It's lacking if it's not for God. Because where our affections lie have eternal consequences. And lastly, point number three, the word has power to cause repentance and salvation. Did you see it? It's very easy to kind of gloss over this but let's go back to the text verse 27 and he said that's the rich man then i beg you father to send him that's lazarus to my father's house send him back from the dead for i have five brothers again concerned primarily with his family and presumably they're rich so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment sounds good right send lazarus back because they need to know that this place really exists and they're headed for it. And Abraham, or the Lord's response, is just fantastic. Verse 29, Abraham said, they, your brothers, have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. If someone goes back to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Did you hear it? Seeing someone rise from the dead, in this case, is less powerful than the word of God. Do you get that? Now, Moses and the prophets is the word. That's what Abraham here is talking about in this parable. Seeing someone rise from the dead is less powerful than the word of God. I find that staggering. I've never seen anyone raised from the dead. Have you? I believe Christ was raised from the dead and 
That's got to be powerful, hasn't it? But how did I find out about that? Through the word of God. Through the expression of the church coming from the word of God, by the spirit of God. Because the word has power to save. I want you to pause for a second and realize something astonishing about this parable. Now, Jesus gives 55 parables. <laughs> Did you know that? Only one of them does he name the characters in his parable. All the other parables have a man went out to sow or two men went out to do this. There was a woman who did this, that, and the other. But in this parable, there's a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. That's unusual. Why did he do that? Why would you put that in, Lord? And to be honest, I don't really know. <laughs> but perhaps, just maybe, in this parable, the Lord is making an allusion to an event that is going to happen. In John 11, where Jesus' friend, whose name is Lazarus, dies. And Jesus raises him from the dead with a word. That text tells us many there believed when they saw the miracle. Many there believed. And yet, if you read on in John, many of those fall away. But also many believed and a whole bunch of others didn't believe. In fact, so bad was it, they went back to Caiaphas and to the Pharisees and said, this guy Jesus just raised someone from the dead. What are you going to do? And Caiaphas utters those words. Have you not heard or read that it's better for one man to die for many? They plotted to kill him. The resurrection of Lazarus didn't cause everyone to believe. The word of God does that. Maybe that's what the Lord's about. Maybe that's why he named this uh, character in this parable, Lazarus. We need the word of God. We need the word of God in our lives to create repentance. We need the word of God in other people's lives. Isn't that one of the reasons we come to church? Aren't we in the word of God right now? He gave the name Lazarus. The word itself says it's the word that saves. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, years ago when I was studying at university, uh, reading theology, uh, there was this one student who was very irritating, um, but he knew the Bible. He was irritating to the lecturers and the other students because he showed us up because we didn't know the Bible anywhere as well as him. And often a lecturer would stand up and pontificate about grand theology, uh, much of it very liberal and not terribly biblical. And this character, whose name was Dave, would just stand up in the middle of the lecture and he would just quote scripture at the lecturer. It was amazing. <laughs> he had no fear. And I was just fascinated by this guy because the lecturers were confounded by the word of God. And so one day in Rainy Hall, I went up to him, we we're having our lunch, and I said, can I sit with you and talk with you? He said, yeah, sure. He was a hardened Scotsman, this fellow. And I said to him, most of them are, and I said to him, how'd you become a Christian? You know, what's your story? And this is what he said. He started like this. He said, when I first got out of prison, that's how his story started. <laughs> when I first got out of prison, I couldn't get a job. And eventually I got a job. And the only job I could get was as a security guard. And it was a night shift. And I go into this big building at night and I just look at these CCTV uh, screens. 
looking after the building. And every hour he had to go around and uh, with his torch and check the locks and so on. And he said he just used to sit there every night and read books. And then one day his neighbor, a lady, said to him, have you ever read the Bible? And he said, no. And she said, I'll give you one. Hang on a minute. She went and got a Bible and gave it to him. And he said, well, thought I'd better give it a go. I mean, I've never read it. And so he started reading at Genesis. He said, I found some of it really hard. He said, I didn't understand much of it, but something was being built. I began to kind of get some ideas. And then he said this, when I got to the end of Matthew, I was born again. A word of God has power to save. And there he was, just giving a word of God to these lecturers. James 1, 21 says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, humility, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Not someone necessarily raised from the dead. And we know Jesus is the one that saves our souls through the death, burial, and resurrection of him. It's the word of God that does things. It's a means of repentance. It's the means of salvation. And that has come too late for this rich man in this parable. We send someone back, they won't necessarily believe. They have the law and the prophets. They have Moses. Let them read that. Let them hear that. It's the word, isn't it, that changes our affections, isn't it? TV, Netflix, films, does that change your affections? It might move you. Does that cause you to love God? No, it causes you to love the world, if truth be told. But the word does something different. It changes our affections and therefore our love for God and therefore our love for everyone else. Isn't that the grace commandment? I say it every time I stand here. The grace commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind and strength and to love no one else. Does it say that? Thy neighbor as thyself. And I don't just mean the people that live around you, right? The boulevard in my case. Although we've got to love those people. The poor, the needy, the sick, the naked. That's what the word does. It causes us to love God. It causes us to change the place of our affections. The rich man, he didn't even see the poor man because his affections weren't for God. His affections were for himself. His affections were for his feasting. I see a big fat man shouldn't say that but that's what i see big fat guy purple cloak stealing away oh this food's great no, poor guy at the the gate he only wants a bit of food on the floor we must ask the question mustn't we why is the rich man like this why has he not got affection for God? Why is the word not in his life? See, the rich man had everything. That's what Abraham tells him. You had all the good things in your life. You had everything in his life. Wealth. Good living. He'd probably go anywhere. He'd probably have a second home at the beach if he wanted. If he had one. But that's all he had. 
All he had was the world. <laughs> what happens to the world? It fades away. It passes away. It's been brought to nothing. There'll be a new one, a, a fully reconstituted one. Don't ask me how that's done, but that's what the word teaches. This world was his entire life. All he had was this world. If you love only this world, that's all you'll get. When the next life comes, you'll see that you had nothing. Because everything you had was simply passing away. The Scots, like every culture, have some great sayings. Um, I love all the Australian idioms and sayings. One of the Scots ones, uh, of course, the Scots are known for being mean, which is not true. The most generous culture I've ever known, second to the Australians. Um, but one of their sayings is, there are no pockets in death shrouds. There's no point in putting a pocket in a death shroud because you can't take anything with you. Well, why did God give it to you? Well, guess what? For his glory. So how are you spending your money? Is this world all that you have? It's going to come to nothing. can't remember the name of the newspaper uh, mogul. But he said, he's a Czechoslovakian Jew that went to the UK. Some of you may know who he is. And he bought a bunch of newspapers. All he had was two copper coins when he went to Britain. And then he became a billionaire. And the quote is, I spent my whole life getting, trying to get to the top, only to find out that when I got there, it was empty. There was nothing. Took his own life in the end. All he had was this world. But if we recognize that all we have is Christ, something changes. Because that's the truth. He's your hope. He's the only one that can save you. If you put your hope in the world, all you have is the world. But you put your hope in Christ, all you have is Christ. And listen, what a treasure. Isn't Christ a treasure? He's the greatest riches that there are. He's the son of God. He died for you, for your sin. He was rich, became, he who was rich became poor for your sake. What a treasure. All you have is Christ. So as we close, I want to ask you, I ask myself the same question. How are you living? How are you living? Where do your affections lie? Think about it, reflect. Last week, Dave kind of asked us to press the reset button. Think again about where we're giving our money to and what we're doing with our money. It's not our money, it's his. He's gonna hold me to account for how I spend his money. How am I living? How are you living? Where do your affections lie? Do they lie in this world? Don't be deceived. Your heart is desperately wicked. You might sit in your seat today, not squirming. I hate to be sitting where you are hearing this message. I'm teaching myself here. Don't be deceived. It's actually quite easy to love money and not realize. There's another rich man. It's not a parable, he's a real character who turns up to speak to Jesus. I think he's young, I think he's also a ruler. He goes to Jesus and he says, teacher, 
Rabboni, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have a bit of a discussion about the commandments. They talk about the second uh, set of commandments, not the first four. How's your living been? The guy says, hey, you know, since I was young, I've kept all of these commandments. The Lord says, yeah, well, one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions, give to the poor and follow me, and you will have life. And the rich man goes away sad because he had many possessions. My question is, what is the one thing he lacked? See, the, the commandments that they didn't talk about were the first four, which are all about putting God first. Aren't they? They're all about loving God, respecting God, honoring God, making your affection for God. That's the one thing he lacked. And so he wasn't going to give up his riches because his affections were for them. He loved them. He put his hope in them. What if God asked you to give up everything you have to follow him? The hard news is he has. He has, and he continues to do so. What's your life like? How are you spending your wealth? Are you giving to mission? You should be. One preacher says you're either uh, sending, going, or sinning. You're giving to mission? You're giving to the church? If you're giving to a church that does not share the gospel, does not desire to evangelize, does not send people even out the door as well as to other countries, then don't give. What's the point? You're paying for a pastor, perhaps. You're paying to keep the lights on. Maybe those things are good, but you might as well pay for the Rotary Club. It's pointless if there's no gospel. You're in a church that does those things. Many are not. you supporting the poor. I had lunch with a friend yesterday who works for the Benevolent Society, which I gather without, I haven't read the history, but he said that initially it had a Christian impetus and power to it. He's directly involved in the poor. And I felt terrible. Here I am create, trying to create this message and he's telling me about the work he's doing with the poor. It was very challenging. Are you supporting the poor? Are you supporting the hungry? The needy, the sick, the poor man in the parable wasn't looking for much. How are you living? Are you living as if you're on mission? Missionaries live from very little, generally, depending on where they are. Are you living like a king with purple robes? There are people out there that have sores, that ache with pain. Christians as well ache with pain, long to be fed. You might say to me, well, I can't find the poor. Look again, look harder. Now, I'm, you probably can tell I'm extremely challenged by this message. I went up to um, the lookout this morning prior to picking up Andrew uh, to pray, just to look over Armadale, pray for people that don't know Christ and to pray the Lord would help me. And there are two men there that were drinking alcohol. This is at 8.30 in the morning. 
and they clearly were quite inebriated and they kept looking over at me and I tried to focus on praying and eventually one of them came over and tapped on the window and I opened the door and started talking to him. Um, his name's Boltan. I'd ask you to pray for him. He's a chap from the Solomon Islands and between my terrible uh, pigeon French and his English, we had a gospel conversation and he wept. He asked for my number and I gave him a tract and said, come to Chapel Street. And he said, I'll be here next week. Take me to church. Take me to church. He had nothing. He was drunk. He told me his story and it's pretty moving. I was super challenged. Right? There was a moment there where I thought, I haven't got time for this guy. What's the Lord doing in my life? Let's finish with this. This is a challenging passage for us, but just listen again anew. If you want to bow your head and just close your eyes, drink it in, let this word be implanted. Receive it with meekness and humility. Matthew 25, 31. Lord Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats he'll place on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked even and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? And the king will answer them truly. I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Did you hear that? Your affections were for me. And so you loved your neighbors. You loved the church. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't even visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Or thirsty? How do we see you as stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, we humbly acknowledge that you are king, you are 
um, the one that um, wears purple robes and there is a feast that's coming that you've invited us to and we acknowledge again lord that you give us all things there's nothing that you that we have that has not been given by you and ultimately lord you gave us your grace and you gave us faith to believe and lord with all the other things that you've given us i pray that you would teach us as a congregation as people who are lights in this world to give and give and give and give all that we have so that your name might be honored your name might be praised and that we might be found to be anything but rich men and women but people who adore you love you have our hope fully placed in you in jesus name amen